Welcome to Chasing Hermes, the pursuit of Mercury, with your hosts, Sean and Jason. Welcome once again to another exciting episode of Chasing Hermes. I'm your host, Sean. And I'm Jason. Jason, how how the heck have you been? Oh, heaven and hell, heaven and hell. Heaven and hell. It has been so long. I'm sure many of our listeners have been wondering if we were ever going to return. I, I did, there was never any doubt in my mind that we would return. There was no doubt in my mind as, as well. But, uh, but you have to admit, some of the emails we received, there was a lot of concern out there that, uh, that perhaps we had been destroyed in, in a catastrophic explosion from our laboratory of the last episode. There was some concern, but there was also a lot of support. There was. Yeah, I really want to thank those of you who wrote in. We totally appreciate it. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, you guys are awesome. It means a lot to us to get feedback from positive listeners out there. And uh, that's all the reward we get from doing these things, other than to get to talk about things that we love to talk about for hours on end. So thank you very much. But now we are well refreshed and uh, we've been uh, delving into some interesting topics over the past couple months on our, on our own time. And now it's time for us to share some of those ideas with you in, uh, in the next few podcasts. So Jason, have you ever noticed when you turn on the radio these days or the television that we're constantly being bombarded by politicians or other individuals talking about evil, all of the evil in the world? Well, yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. I, I tend to stay away from those channels, though. It's like they have an agenda of portraying the world as being either positive or negative, as being either good or evil. Right. And But this isn't a new thing. This isn't some uh, result of modern society, although we might like to, to look at the media and just say they are the uh, the propagators of this evil speak. But in reality, mankind has been talking about the presence of good and evil in this sort of dichotomy for millennia. What modern media fails often to tell us is that we're actually living in the best of times. Even though there have been a few very large wars in the 20th century, overall, fewer people have died from war in the last century than in many, many centuries before. People Hmm. live to a long age. We are healthy. We're well-educated we are, can really consider ourselves lucky in having been born at this time. Huh, that's interesting. So do you think the world is mostly light or mostly dark? Oh, I would have to say that what there is is mostly light, but that the shadow it casts can make it seem like a very dark place. Mm. So it sounds like you have a, a pretty naturally positive outlook on life. Sure. I mean, I would have to say that there's definitely the presence of evil. We just have to ask ourselves, like philosophers of old, what is evil and and what is its reality in the state of mankind and our relationship to the divine? Have you ever been confronted with something so difficult and, and horrible in your life? Maybe the death of a loved one or um, some other uh, deep tragedy that made you reconsider your view on the world? Or... Or maybe even have a, a crisis of faith. Well, fortunately for me, I have not had such a situation. However, I do have people that have been very close to me who have had such a crisis of faith, uh, be it a, a death in the family or some other type of tragedy that that has occurred to them. 
they use that as evidence against the existence of God. Because as the old argument goes, God is all-knowing, so he knows of this suffering. And he's all-powerful, so he could stop it. And he's supposed to be all-good, so that would necessitate his removing this tragedy and suffering from me. So therefore, since I am suffering, God must not exist. And, and for these individuals, it leads them either to a state of agnosticism or to a state of pure atheism. These people don't realize that what they're doing there is a very, very large assumption on their behalf. A, that they're able to judge what is good and evil, and B, that they're able to deduce something about the Creator from these events. Sure. But what you bring up here is the age-old theodicy problem. Oh, the theodicy problem coined by Leibniz. Yes. He was the originator of the first multiple worlds hypothesis as an answer to this very problem of evil. The problem itself is a paradox. And the paradox is that if you have a benevolent deity and that that deity is also omnipotent, can do all things, then how can you have human suffering? Right. How can you have evil in the world if the creator wants good to happen and he is able to make that good happen? Exactly. Then why doesn't he? Yeah, it's, it's a logical contradiction of terms. And it's been used by atheists many times to disprove the existence of God on a philosophical level. Sure. Although we can't discredit it as a, a motivating force for creating atheists. I know uh, one of my early mentors who is a big writer on this problem of evil in uh, modern philosophy, uh, William Rowe, um, he's a philosopher who actually started out as a devout Baptist, and it was after his tenure as a philosopher of religion where he was trying to tackle this problem of evil, and it just stumped him to such a degree that he actually became an atheist because of it. Not only is it an argument that atheists use to justify their belief in the absence of God, but it can also have the power to take the faithful and move them onto the side of materialism. This debate has been going on uh, as long as we have recorded history. So tell us a little bit about how the Hermetists uh, approach this problem. If we look at the Corpus Hermeticum and the Asclepius, um, which is kind of its brother text or sister text, it is clear to me when reading them that they were written within a context, within a historical context, where these issues were already being discussed, even though the term theodicy hadn't been coined yet for another 1,700 years or so. Right. People were already struggling with these things. Mm -hmm. um, and although hermetism doesn't it doesn't take a religious standpoint, rather it, it's a philosophical standpoint that doesn't adhere to any one religion. Right. It still starts with the presumption that there is a God who created the universe and that that God is good. So you have the benevolent deity right there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and the Corpus Hermeticum basically skirts this issue a few times, but you can infer what the authors are thinking in many places. So for example, the Corpus Hermeticum talks about that good doesn't exist except in God, right? Right. So it, so it starts kind of defining what is good. Mm -hmm. Sort of the platonic idea of the summum bonum, the, the greatest good, is synonymous with God. Exactly, and that it is a property of God that doesn't really exist here. 
uh, in its fullness, right? So whatever good we believe we know here on earth does not really compare to the true good that exists with God, where God sure. is. Our experience of good is merely a reflection of the true good, capital G. Exactly. That's, that's exactly what, what they're saying. How do we know that the universe that we live in is not good? Well, um, if we look at the place where God is said to exist, mm-hmm. um, we can see that he inhabits the world that is fixed, mm. you know, the fixed stars in the sky, right? Way above the firmament. Yeah. And so, since the universe clearly moves, I move, you move, the planets around us move, so the universe itself cannot be purely good. Because it is variable and transient. Exactly. It's not static. Mm. Um, And because of that, it is subject to passion, and it produces passion and other kinds of vices. Um, But the cosmos is also not evil, because it is immortal. The cosmos itself cannot die. It will go on forever. And whatever is eternal cannot be evil. The good that we experience here is just a small reflection of the true good, with a capital G, as you you put it. Mm -hmm. Um, And we can experience that in our mind. Mm -hmm. Within our minds, we have this seed of good, which is the seed of God. But the evil that we see as well can perhaps originate from a demon or from some sort of archon. An archon is kind of like a planetary demon, mm-hmm, if you mm-hmm. will. Sure. Um, like an archdemon, if you will. Yeah. Or as some say, it could be just the result of our, the very nature of flesh and matter. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's another thing where, where these hermetic writings actually contradict each other a little bit. Is the flesh good or evil? Mm-hmm. Uh, is, right. it, is it wrong to want to look after your body, for example? Is that good or evil? Sure. Um, we don't really get a clear answer either or. Yeah, nor have we, uh, as mankind, come up with the clear answer for that. As you can see, various faiths today have that same battle raging on. At the very least, we can see how the flesh can pull you away from spiritual things. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's clear. Um, but where you're going from there is a matter of personal choice, perhaps. But we can say, then, that according to this argument, that in some capacity, evil exists in the world that is apart from the good that is in it. And we have to deal with that if we want to also accept the notion of an all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good, capital G, deity. Uh, Indeed. But is he omnipotent, though? The old Hermetic authors, the original Hermetic authors, Mm -hmm. they did not quite believe that God was omnipotent, that he could do whatever he wanted on earth, the way you and I would probably think about um, uh, for example, the Judeo-Christian God or, hmm. or even the Islamic God. Really? What, what sorts of limitations did they accept? Well, it's not so much of a limitation, but rather it is a distance, that God has distanced himself from creation to some degree. And we see this in many creation myths. Mm-hmm. On one extreme of, of this sort of um, scale, you would have the sort of uh, the clockmaker God, yeah. where, where the universe is basically a, a clock that God has created, and he winds it up and just walks away, right? Mm-hmm. That's the theological backing of the deist movement uh, back in the very founding of the United States of America. How many of the founders were followers of this deism, which stated this exact notion that, that God put the universe in order, set up its laws and its mechanisms, and then pressed play, and then walked away. Exactly, and 
that's the kind of direction you're going to walk down if you completely accept the laws of nature, mm -hmm. right? Because then you'll, you'll, you'll get into a very deterministic universe. And, and if you then still want to put a god within that worldview, then that god will necessarily be very, very removed from, from the universe. On the other extreme, you would have a god that is extremely involved, and mm -hmm. he's involved in your life all the time, and that you can, you can talk to him, you can ask him things, and he will deliver, mm -hmm. right? But hermetism falls somewhere in between. But they use a kind of device in order to bridge the gap of these two extremes. And they borrowed this idea, as they do with very many ideas, from Plato, um, from one <laughs> of his texts called Timaeus. And the idea is that God creates the universe and then walks away, but he doesn't leave it completely. He sends right. an emissary. He puts semi-God in between. Yeah. A God of creation. A mediator. A mediator, also known as the Demiurge. So he can keep one eye open. Exactly. Well, he knows that his servant, if you will, is looking after the universe. So there's a creator God, but that is not the God that actually seems to be the God of this world, right? Right. Because the God of this world is just a lesser God put in place as a sort of uh, janitor, if you will, or, <laughs> right. or, or a ruler of this world. Well, and you see this model uh, in even more ancient forms of uh, polytheism, where the God that was actually in charge of creating the world and animals and mankind and plants and animals was not actually the first God, but rather there was an even more primal God that created that creator God. And we see this a lot in, in the Egyptian pantheons, in Hindu pantheons, and in uh, Nordic pantheons, I believe. Oh, absolutely. It's the same kind of idea. You're absolutely right there. I didn't think about that. The question then, the, the sort of dividing point for a lot of these movements, uh, of which hermetism was one, is this janitor God, if you will, <laughs> is he good or bad? Does he want what we want? Does he right. pit the forces of, of nature against the good and the virtuous people, or does he reward the good and the virtuous people? That is the question. One of the criticisms that was raised by the early Christian church against the Gnostic uh, movements was that they believed in an evil god. Right. Well, not that they worshipped that evil god, far from it, but that they said that the god of this world is actually evil. But not everybody that believed that there was a demiurge um, believed that he was evil. And hermetism leans more towards a good demiurge. He's yeah. just not quite as powerful or quite as good as the true creator. Right, yeah. So um, that's a kind of primal dualism that hermetism uh, displays. But it was also very dualist in the sense that it believed in a world of matter and a world of spirit. Sure. And within this world of matter and spirit, it's actually possible to perceive both of these deities through the physical senses, you would be able to perceive the God of creation. Mm -hmm. But this supreme God, the original God, is unknowable except by reason ah. and by knowledge. Right, through your higher spiritual senses. Exactly, which in Greek would be called nous, which we've seen before, yep. and knowledge, gnosis. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And Gnosis is obviously where the Gnostics get their name from. It's their strong emphasis of Gnosis as a prerequisite to salvation. Right, yeah. And we see part of the strong emphasis on knowledge of Gnosis 
also in Asclepius. And uh, in chapter 16, the author essentially refuses to answer the question of why humans suffer. We don't need to respond to these questions at all, because (laughs) if you ask this question, then you have not achieved knowledge. Right, because to them, wouldn't it be self-evident? Once you have obtained these higher spiritual senses, then you either see it or you don't, just as much as recognizing red or blue and distinguishing the two from one another. Uh, So too to many of these authors, once you have obtained these higher spiritual senses and, and have obtained gnosis, you either see it or you don't. It's just another perception. And even if you do see it, perhaps it's very, very difficult to put it into writing. Yeah. Right. Or perhaps he just simply wanted to avoid the, this question and, and <laughs> yeah. go into other details. Right. More he, interesting or <laughs> would lend themselves to words more easily. <laughs> um, so in Asclepius 16, we read, These people say that God should have freed the world of every kind of evil. Yet evil is so much in the world that it seems almost to be an organ of the world. Right. So he's basically saying look around you, the world really does seem like it has evil parts integral to its very pump that makes it breathe and live. That it doesn't seem as some artifact not belonging to nature, but rather it is a part of nature itself. Exactly. And Asclepius continues, and he says, Acting as reasonably as possible, the Supreme God took care to provide against evil when he designed to endow human minds with consciousness, learning, and understanding. For it is these gifts alone by which we surpass other living things. Mm. And these things enable us to avoid the tricks and snares and vices of evil. Right? Hmm. So, essentially, the Supreme God has endowed human beings with all the faculties to avoid evil, to understand evil. We have reason. Mm-hmm. Um, we have consciousness, mm-hmm. and we have learning, and we have understanding. So, we, by being conscious of evil, we can learn about it, mm-hmm. and by learning, we can understand it. And when we understand it, we know enough to avoid it. That's interesting. So, that is, in a very ancient sense, synonymous with the Irenaeus and later philosophers such as Hicks' proposal that evil can be explained as a soul-making mechanism. In other words, it enriches the soul as we deal and overcome with suffering and the obstacles of evil. We somehow grow through the process. Would, would you say that, that this is some aspect of, of what they're describing here? Yeah, I think so. I think so. It's a bit of hmm. the world as a school for souls, right? And we yeah, find this yeah. in a lot of um, mystery traditions all over the world. But rather than saying you know, evil tempers the soul and makes it better. It's saying, by understanding and analyzing the nature of evil, we can learn to avoid it. So it's more of a right. head-on approach. It's not It's not saying, accept your suffering because it will purify you. It's saying, look at your suffering and learn how to avoid it. Right. And, and it's through overcoming the suffering, it's through overcoming the obstacles of evil that we grow in virtue. Right. I don't think that this author is proposing that we do as the Catholics do and suffer in silence, right? And just accept. Or maybe, oh, no, that's, I don't mean to slight Catholics. Maybe I should say um, that it is Speak more of a for Calvinist. frame of Catholicism. <laughs> um, no, but maybe it's a Calvinist uh, kind of approach, um, is to just take it, take it like a man. Right. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Look at the Savior and see how, how he suffered. 
how minuscule must not your sufferings be compared to his? That can still be a misunderstanding of a certain spiritual approach to suffering. I think for a majority of, of mystics of today, suffering itself is a way of developing an empathy or a an understanding of the nature of the suffering of others so that it drives you with a new passion to, to overcome that suffering, not just for yourself, but for the world around you. So you're saying that suffering is a motivator to remove suffering in others. Yeah. Hmm. In either case, I think it's a byproduct of this world and of certain processes in this world. And by analyzing the root cause of those problems and those sufferings, we can learn more about what what the world is like. And maybe we will find that not only is the world not purely white or purely black, but also ourselves have mm. traces of good and traces of bad within us. Yeah, I could easily see how the human person has both the good and the evil in us. We have a potential for great good, and we each have a potential for great evil. And it's that battle that wages on within each and every one of us that will determine the nature of our character and the virtue of our soul. So you're saying that the good seeds in you compete with the bad seeds for um, your pastures, so to speak. Or they're just both available for me if I choose to plant evil trees or I choose to plant good trees. So when you choose to cultivate the good in you, um, would you say that reverence is part of what signifies them as being good? Yeah, we could say that reverence is the recognition and the response to an understanding of the good that is in deity, the good that is in God. If I understand it truly, then I will revere it. And if I revere it, then that is an indication that I somehow, on some level, am connected with it. Right. As far as human suffering goes, it is this irreverence that causes not only causes, it is the suffering itself. That the irreverence ah. is the suffering. It is punishment by itself. So the irreverence, we could say, is also another way of describing the, the willful turning away from God, the willful turning away from that which is divine, which is the root of, you know, of the Judeo-Christian uh, Garden of Eden. Uh, fall of man story. Exactly. The irreverence displayed by Adam and Eve in that myth is what caused the fall. Mm -hmm. It was not their curiosity. It was not their sexuality. It was their irreverence for the decree, don't eat of this fruit. Right. And the suffering and the consequent evil that would be perceived and experienced by mankind was not necessarily a punishment of the judgment, but was rather a necessary result of that turning away, that irreverence. Exactly. And if you are ignorant of the laws of the universe, if you're ignorant of the existence and the very nature of God, then it's much harder to be reverent. Mm -hmm. And if you are in a place where it is difficult to see the nature of God, it, where, where the good has concealed itself from view, yeah. then you could be said to be in a, in, in a hell existence. Right. In Greek mythology, this hell was called Hades. Mm -hmm. Hades is even mentioned in Asclepius as, uh, as a region that is deprived of visibility, where God and nature is invisible. The world itself conceals your eyes from looking upon 
the good which is outside of it. Hmm. But it's not that the world is bad, it's just that it gets in the way of the good. Sure, and I think that that's one of the misconceptions of of modern terminology. A lot of times we use the term darkness to be synonymous with with evil, when in reality, in, in this sense, when we look at it classically, this concept of darkness is really about concealing light. It's not necessarily synonymous with the evil itself, but rather it is merely the shading of what is right and good and the true light. Would you say that darkness is ignorance? Exactly. So that then that veiling produces ignorance, because if we were in the presence of light, we would know. The Corpus Hermeticum says that of all the evils that exist in mankind, the greatest one among them is the ignorance of God. We've also seen that this ignorance can lead to this irreverence that is punishment itself. So in this model that we're learning here from Asclepius, it seems that our pain, our suffering, and our perception of evil in the world is really the byproduct of our own ignorance of God, our own willful withdrawal from being immersed in the divine. Exactly, and that is, of course, part of the hermetic agenda, is to say, if you want to conquer this world, if you want to gain your soul, you have to learn the secret knowledge, you have to learn the gnosis, which in extension will lead you to know God. That is very significant of all of the Gnostic movements, of which Hermetism can be said to be one, or at least a sister movement of it. Um, Other movements, such as early Christianity, um, did not emphasize the knowledge. They emphasized the faith, Mm -hmm. that by believing in the person of Christ, you would have salvation. Other religions did not even see a need for salvation at all. But we can see here that that salvation was a concern of the early Hermetists. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because to them, salvation was to be had through coming to know God. And if you think about it, that's really not all that different than the teachings of the Master Jesus himself, who, who one could say his ministry was really to bring man to know his Father in heaven. So in a way, he was also behaving as the mediator in, in this model between mankind and the ultimate source of creation. I agree with your interpretation there. Um, I think if you look at it this way, then the faith and the knowledge can really be two sides of the same coin. They're not mutually exclusive. Absolutely not. And I do think reverence plays a very large part in that as well. Right. And then this is where you get into the uh, the arguments about faith versus works, you know, where in this model, works becomes a reflection of your true faith. So the work of reverence is the sign and the token that you do have faith and that you do know uh, the divine. If you believe, in fact, that the reverence is the work or that reverence itself is a doing and not merely a being. Remember when we talked about the Garden of Eden and we talked about this idea of a golden past? Yeah. Yeah. I think the same idea can be found here, not necessarily in a cosmic history, but rather in an individual history, that the authors of the Hermetic text looked at the likeness of a child to be an Mm -hmm. image uh, or a metaphor of somebody who was reverent and blissful, 
um, in that they're also dispassionate. They're dispassionate about the vice of evil. They are open and innocent about the world, and they're keen to learn. And by forgetting about this dispassionate state, by by, by moving out of that, by moving into um, you know a more normal adult materialistic frame of mind, you are losing your innocence, and this loss of innocence leads to the vice. Right. It itself becomes the shrouding darkness that buries the light, so that you forget your connection to the divine. Exactly. So where are we at now uh, with our analysis, our breakdown of the theodicy problem? I think we can see the Hermetists as arguing here that the existence of evil in the world is really a byproduct of our own ignorance, and that because they're stressing the gnosis of the divine as the key to salvation, they can say then that in its absence thereof is where we get evil, that is where we get suffering, and that these are the results of our own willful turning away. So thereby... Uh, what they want us to do is to seek knowledge, to seek understanding, and that through this process of overcoming the evil, overcoming the obstacles and the suffering, we can gain such knowledge and therefore remove ourselves from this state of suffering. And also that if something evil befalls you, that it's not necessarily a punishment Right, yeah, it's it could just be a byproduct of nature. And even if you do something bad and you do get punished for that, then it is your own acts that is punishment right. in and by itself. This is just so fascinating to me because, you know, these are concepts, this dialogue is still being had today in the journals of philosophy of religion. I mean, even within the past hundred years, these same arguments are being used to combat the problem of evil. And it really goes to show, as we've discussed in previous episodes, that these ancients were just as much modern thinkers as we are. And these topics will never be solved, I don't think. And I, right. I, I'm reminded of the story of Job uh, in the Old Testament. Um, sure. Where he loses everything he has, right? His wife, mm-hmm. his, his family, his belongings, everything. He's just sitting on a garbage dump wearing nothing but, you know... Uh, worn out Adidas shorts, right? Um, <laughs> you have a different version uh, than I do. No, but I mean, I always like to think of, you know, these people who are wearing sackcloth, you know, sackcloth today can be quite expensive. <laughs> well, if you got the right label. Uh, exactly. No, no, that's not what I mean. I mean, you know, to obtain these natural fibers can be quite expensive. Oh, yeah. If you, if you oh, were sure. to put it into today's terms, you would actually have somebody wear, you know, secondhand clothes that you get for free at the Salvation Army. <laughs> yeah. Right? So he's... Poor Job. Uh, poor Job. So he's sitting there on this trash heap, and um, his friends come to him one by one, and each one has a different view. They're trying to fit their mental worldview onto his situation. One is saying, right. you must have sinned, and God is punishing you. Yeah. And he says, no, I haven't sinned. He refutes each and, each and every one. Another saying, you know, God is evil, etc. And he refutes each one of these arguments. And at the end, all that matters is that he endures. Right. That through persistence he overcame. Through persistence he overcame, that he did not lose faith. Right. And, you know, we see this this struggle in a lot of mystics. You know, uh, St. John of the Cross comes to mind. Even St. John's Gospel refers to 
Christ as the light that shines in the darkness. And with St. John of the Cross, he speaks of his own suffering in the darkness. And to mystics who follow that path, even when in a state of darkness, there is still light that can be found. And it seems like Job is referencing this light in the darkness. That no matter what lights are turned off around you, no matter what state of darkness you're in, you can still find one light that cannot be cast out of that darkness. And if you can find it, then it can be the path that leads to your salvation. I think the way I read the book of Job is that all models of good and evil will eventually fail, and it will pale in the light of your own life. That's well said. It's well said that no matter how much we try to look at things logically or emotionally, in the end, it's going to come down to our own free will choice to decide if we want to continue believing and have faith, or if we want to turn away and use that as just another logical example to the contrary. Well, I have to say, Jason, that uh, this has been a very intriguing episode for me, very educational, and uh, I really appreciate the fact that these ancient thinkers, these ancient hermetists, were battling with the same problems that we're battling with today, and that hopefully, by understanding it from an ancient point of view, it, it sort of helps remove us from the inside of the situation, maybe helps us look at it a little more objectively to see what is the communal spirit, what's the common solution that we're still trying to resolve today in this problem. So, uh, is the dark side stronger? No, quicker, easier, more seductive. (laughs) All right. Well, hey, thanks everybody for listening and uh, join us again next time on Chasing Hermes. Visit our website at www.chasinghermes.com or send us an email at info at To inquire about the Western mystery tradition, please visit www.western-mysteries.com.